and welcome to the Beer Vana Show, which of course you can also download the podcast. I don't like this new script, man. Well, I, we're just trying it out. Now we, now, now we know you don't like it. <laughs> but but I can't roll with it. So, all right, ready? Welcome to the Beer Vana Show, <laughs> it always which sends of you- course you can download as a podcast. <laughs> it, it sends you into your terrible radio voice. So <laughs> it I, does. I, I'm going to definitely get rid of it that. It does. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Uh, we're here again in the studios of X-Ray FM to record our show. Yes. Which is a live show. Well, not a live show, but I mean a radio show and a podcast. Yes. Uh, we are in North Portland. Yes. <laughs> and the Falcon Art Building. See, I can get it all in. You, you, I don't need to read your damn script. You you managed to pull it off. <laughs> After 105 episodes, you're, you're still able to do that. Good job. All right. Well, I should introduce you. You are Jeff Allworth. You have written books. You are currently writing a book. Yeah. I'm in the last month of- You have some uh, bags under your eyes, yeah. which suggests that you are fi- getting to the final throes of writing a book. I am really- I, I tried to write a book once. I was successful. I'm never doing it again. So the fact that you've written multiple books is astonishing to me. But among the books you've written yeah. are the Beer Bible, uh-huh. which you're updating now. That's the one I'm updating so look now. look for the Beer Bible, the New Testament coming soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably about a year from now. So it's going to be right? a quick turnaround. Really? Yeah. It's yeah. going to get out. Oh, good. That's what they say. We'll see. And uh, the Woodmer Way, which is out now. Mm-hmm. Lugong Press. Mm-hmm. Look for it in local bookstores near you. You are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University. Uh, yeah. Go Beeves. I am. And I gave an exam yesterday, so now I have to grade. Which sucks. Yeah, we're at the end of the term. So, I, <laughs> so let's drink beer instead. <laughs> All right, before we get started, we'd like to thank Breakside Brewery for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana Show. You can find them in Slabtown, Woodlawn, and Milwaukee, Oregon, or at breakside.com. And don't forget, that's Milwaukee, Oregon. Don't go to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They're not there yet. <laughs> that's right. And uh, we're looking over at a guest that we have. I'll let you do the intro, but uh, it's relevant to the... Well, it's relevant in two ways. I thought of it in two ways. Okay, so uh, welcome. We have Ben Edmonds, who's brewmaster at Breakside. Hi, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. Uh, And it it occurred to me in two ways, because among your books is Secrets of the Master Brewers, Mm -hmm. which I know that Ben is featured in. Yeah, uh, my chapter on American IPAs. uh, Each chapter is written based on the inside of a master brewer, which is why it's the Secrets of Master Brewers. So I have People like Hans Peter Drexler from uh, Schneider and uh, Olivier Dedecker from uh, Dupont, and so on. And uh, I got the best IPA brewer I knew from America, so we we put Ben in there. Uh, partly because uh, he's a great. Brewer. The other guys didn't pick up the phone. Is what <laughs> well, Ben, you're a very thoughtful guy. You're 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 an analytic guy, and uh, I knew that you'd give me a great insight, and you did. Thank so, you. Yeah, it was a, pl- a lot of fun to be part of that project. Yeah, it was yeah. cool. I and learned dig, a lot. If you dig really deep into the Beervana podcast archives, you will find our uh, show with Ben about fresh hot beers. That's right. And it was like episode eight or something. It was really early yeah. on. So. <laughs> the audio is pretty bad. Yeah. But go, go for it. It's good. It's still interesting, actually. And why do we have Ben here today, Patrick? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Wait a minute, why is he here? <laughs> uh, because we're going to talk about the Oregon Beer Awards. Excellent. Which recently announced winners for the 2020 competition. Uh, okay. I'm going to write, should I read your words? No, as <laughs> no, you should always fix my words and not comment. On them. Uh, Ben is the organizer of the event, uh, and the brewmaster at Breaks Up Brewing. We mentioned that. What is your title for the event? Again, you mentioned the competition director. Ben is the competition director of the Oregon Beer Awards. Uh, so we're going to talk about Ben, uh, Ben, we're going to talk, talk to Ben about why this festival is different and why he and the organizers of the OBA reworked style categories. And also, what constitutes excellent when excellence when comparing beers? Uh, all that soon. But first, let's talk about the news. As the beer market matures, we're seeing consolidation in many areas, including the small world of beer rating sites. A couple of weeks back, Beer Advocate announced it had been acquired by Untapped. Recall that a year ago, AB InBev acquired the other legacy rating sites, Rate Beer. Rating site, sorry. This is as much a technology as beer story as the old desktop-based beer advocate failed to adapt to a world of smartphone raters. Yeah, uh, it's it's a bit of a, a niche story, but uh, I thought it would be interesting since we have Ben here to hear what is it like, uh, how do these things impact you as a brewer, as a brewery, uh, you know, you have... It used to be back in the old beer advocate days, being rated very highly was 
a feather in people's caps and people care. Now sure. we're into untapped. Does it matter as much anymore? What 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 do you make of this? I think that there's certainly some. It's one pathway to success. You know, it's one it's one way that breweries can stand out is to do really mm-hmm. well on those sites. I don't think it's a prerequisite to success either in business or in in quality or in just marketplace or reputation even. But they do hold sway. I mean, and certainly if you when you start to think about, you know, who gets invited to festivals or how do you get invited to certain festivals or it's based on the perception that the beer nerd consumers are going to come to uh, see certain breweries mm-hmm. and that hype does play out in that in in that scenario. And is it different <clears throat> is untapped different than uh, rate beer and beer advocate is it a different era now? I think so. I was you know before I was a brewer I was myself a big beer nerd still am a big beer nerd but <laughs> a different sort of way and I was a beer advocate guy you know uh-huh. I didn't uh, I never really used rate beer um, used beer advocate for a long time uh, in the you know 2000s before getting into professional brewing and so the untapped is definitely I think a, a you know next iteration of that seems like there's not a huge generational difference more uh, to Patrick's point you know a little bit more about user friendliness on an right. app versus sitting down at a desktop yeah and I, I still appreciate i mean I, I a i love the alstrom brothers they're they've always been huge supporters of breakside hmm. and we get do a bunch of their festivals every year and i think that they put on some of the best fests in the world and it seems like that may have been why untapped bought them is because untapped couldn't do festivals as well as beer advocate yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there was a number of reasons that the transaction took place, but that certainly is one of their hidden strengths beyond um, just you know the content they generate online. Right. Okay. Cool. Uh, our second item, uh, which neither Patrick nor Ben had heard about, so this is fun. Australian <laughs> researchers have developed an electronic nose to help breweries assess beer quality. It measures gases from the beer and uses machine learning to evolve over time. The sensors in the e-nose are calibrated to measure these volatiles, and namely gases like carbon dioxide, ethanol, methane, hydrogen, ammonia, benzene, and, and others. Um, it's a small machine and portable, and breweries have been pleased with the early versions of the technology. So, um, Blasphemous. <laughs> the idea, I think, is that it's a, a kind of first cut before sensory, and it allows you to pick up really objectionable off flavors uh, before before you go, probably they don't. They didn't mention VDK stuff, but um, anyway, apparently. Okay. Oh, f- field beer, beer nerd VDK. Uh, vi- Vicinal diketones. Okay. Thank you, nerds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is the precursor to diacetyl? Is that what it, it it's is? actually the family of uh, compounds that are related to diacetyl? Yeah. So um, I think it's not. I think it's not that the technology is not advanced enough to actually take the place of human noses. Uh, our noses are still more sophisticated than machines, but it does seem promising in that uh, other machines like this haven't been so successful. And it's apparently way cheaper than uh, sending it off to lab. So if you have got some problems, especially contamination problems, apparently you can pick that stuff up. So could be cool. Especially for small breweries. I don't know. Yeah, pretty soon we'll get robots to drink our beer for us. And then where will we be? <laughs> Come yeah, on, man. It, it's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, why don't we turn to our main topic? Uh, we've already welcomed our guest, but I'll welcome him again. Welcome, Ben Edmonds. Uh, uh, you are the, of the beer, Oregon Beer Awards. The competition, competition director. Director of the Oregon Beer Awards. And the brewmaster at Breakside Brewery. Uh, and I'm... Enjoying, by the way, right now, a Rainbow's Unicorns. So thank you for bringing that. Thanks. <laughs> One yeah. of my faves. Uh, Me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, welcome. So Jeff, I'm going to let you take it away um, since you are a judge of the Oregon Beer Awards. Sure. So I wanted to have Ben on here. We just, uh, we've mentioned recently the uh, winners of the Oregon Beer Awards. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that festival because it's unusual or that competition. It's unusual among competitions because it does not use the same style guidelines. The judges are not instructed to judge the same way as they are in other competitions. Um, and uh, it has also gained, I, th- I think, and we'll talk about this too, a fairly good purchase among Oregon breweries as a as a, brag- a point of bragging rights. So uh, quite a bit of uh, buy-in, which is always another when you host a competition and no one shows up, it doesn't work so well. So all of these things are interesting, and I thought it would be cool to sit down with Ben and talk about how uh, how all that stuff developed and what your thinking was, because 
uh, people in the rest of the world uh, might be interested in an alternative to the GBF World Cup uh, or World Beer Cup uh, kind of guidelines. Sure. So tell us uh, a little bit about this competition, which started maybe like six years ago or something, five or six years ago. Yeah. So the first year would have been the the unofficial first year was 2015. Okay. And it's grown very much over the years. Yeah, so the, the genesis of it's kind of interesting was that at the time, <clears throat> uh, in 2014, the then editor-in-chief, or uh, sorry, arts editor of Willamette Week, a guy named Martin Sismar, who uh, you guys both know well. And Twitter, some Twitter people may know him as well. <laughs> <laughs> had attended GABF, and he came back from GABF really impressed with the theatrics of the actual award ceremony mm -hmm. and wanted to do something, put on some sort of event that was like that, but for Oregon, right? That celebrate Oregon beer, kind of an Oscars or an Academy Awards type ceremony. So for the first year of it, he invited a handful of beer community, kind of like some brewers, some uh, writers, some sales folks, bar managers, to come in and basically just argue uh, over pizza <laughs> one night about what the best beers in Oregon were. And right. it was kind of this, blue, in theory, a blue ribbon panel, but it just ended up a lot of shouting and arguing. And <laughs> I can't actually remember what the mechanism was that we used to decide who won or whatnot, but effectively created kind of these categories. And there's no judging at this point. This was just a bunch of people talking about, you know, their opinions, <laughs> sharing their opinions about beer. So there weren't even categories. You were just... We came up with the categories as well, that was the first step. <laughs> right. <laughs> was, I know. And so even that was contentious, as you can imagine. Sure. And that led to an award ceremony, I want to say, in either late February or I can't remember exactly when it was, but early in 2015, where Martin got on stage and announced the winners of these 15 categories or so. And it was actually an, an event that sold out and coincided with the release of their beer guide. That mm -hmm. was the, you know, the published beer guide that they still do to this day. Right. Fast forward about six months and Martin asks me and Ezra Johnson Greeno of the new school to kind of do a debrief of the previous year's Oregon beer awards. And that's when I came, you know, both Ezra and I had kind of different angles on this mm -hmm. and Ezra wanted to improve the ceremony. So it wasn't just one person reading results off of a few pieces of, you know, printer paper <laughs> to do something much more dynamic, much with presenters and sponsors and a band and uh, red carpet arrivals. And I wanted to bring in something that was more legitimate in terms of competition. Right. Um, as far as categories that could be blind judge where breweries could enter their own beers, get really serious feedback. Um, and so Martin kind of bid on it and let us roll. And from there, the kind of modern... OBAs were born, you know, in their current incarnations. We've done this now, uh, gosh, five years of actual judging, 2016 through 2020. In 2016, I want to say, I should have checked these numbers before I came here today, but I want to say we managed to get about 400 or 500 entries from around the state. This past year in 2020, we got 1,250 uh -huh. around the state. Mm -hmm. We started in 2016 probably with only 14 or so categories. Uh -huh. uh, and that's one thing I think when we talk about the styles and the categories, that's a pretty unique kind of uh, unique piece of this competition. Now we have, we're up to 30, but we have 4X the number of, or 3X the number of entries that we did uh, five years ago. And it's judged entirely blind, double blind. We can talk about what that means too. Mm -hmm. But the winners are determined by a panel of judges evaluating beers on their merits. Um, and those winners are kept secret until the night of the ceremony. Uh so one of the interesting things that I, I, you invited me to judge pretty early on, I don't know if it was the first year or the second year, uh, but uh, what, one of the things that I was impressed by is that it was mostly local brewers, brewers from Oregon. Was that an intentional thing or was that just because you're a brewer and you happen to know a lot of brewers? It was very intentional. You know, I think that if you look at the same pool, it's, it's honestly not that different than the pool that you get from the Great American Beer Festival or World Beer Cup. Okay. Um, and where, you know, I think people can knock those two competitions for having some, you know, bizarre and uh, obscure categories. But the reality is, you know, I think that OBA is a great, has a great judge pool, but you're not going to get a better group of people, a more educated group of 300 people in the world together than you do for World Beer Cup in terms of judging or the Great American Beer Festival in terms of judging. Not at once, not in the same room. 
And so that's a very, you know, industry heavy pool already. Uh So you're talking to people who are day to day involved in the weeds in this. So we've always maintained about 75% industry professionals, brewery affiliated folks. They can't judge their own beer. It's blind anyways. Um, They're not allowed to judge categories that they're in beyond a first round. Again, if we want to really get into the details and the minutia of it, we can talk about that piece of it. But then that remaining 25% is, you know, media, you know, qualified media, beer sales reps, uh, allied industry, publicans, you know, any people from all across the three-tier system. But it's very different than, um, it's not a lot of, we don't really care about BJCP certification or any kind of external Cicerone type certification. Those are really incidental. It's really about people's experience and their sensory knowledge. Um, and, you know, I, I respect what those other programs do for homebrew judging, but I don't think that that really is uh, analogous to what you see in other competitions elsewhere. And we wanted to build something that was similar to the World Beer Cup and GABF, but do it for Oregon in a way that felt very very Oregonian. Right. I, I want to come back to the judges, but let's talk about uh, the, the competition itself. You decided instead of just saying, you, you could have just said, well, we've got these guidelines, right? You already sure. you have the GABF guidelines. Let's just do this in Oregon. Sure. But you didn't. You decided to uh, scrap all of that and reconceptualize beer style and think about what made sense in a judging competition if you started from scratch. And you came up with 14 styles. Now it's up to 30. So talk about that whole process, why you did that, and and what your goals were. I mean, simply put, one of the sim- the, the key things was to make the awards meaningful to a customer uh-huh. who could say, you know, I don't know what a South German style Hefeweizen is, <laughs> but I know what a wheat beer is. So wheat beers can get lumped together. The other was to, frankly, keep the categories competitive so that it wasn't these categories that have nine entries. Our neighbors to the north in Washington do a competition, the Washington Beer Awards, where they get roughly the same number of entries that we have in the Oregon Beer Awards, but they have 100 plus categories. Right. And, you know, the number of beers that entries that actually go on to win medals and that are astronomically high. And, um, and they actually do just use the the same style guidelines. Correct. GDF, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and there's certainly a value to that. I mean, it, it gives a different set of feedback. And but to me, it, it is less meaningful to win a medal in a competition like that, where it's just simply kind of shooting fish in a barrel. So we wanted to keep it competitive, um, that we wanted to be a stiff competition. Right. So. Talk about some of the styles that you came up with that are different than the GABF and you feel are maybe a little bit more intuitive uh, and, you know, make more sense. Because for me, when you first sent out the style guidelines, I was so impressed with this because I have always had kind of the the idea that you're going to parse all these styles so finely. Sure. What's the difference really between an international style Pilsner and an Australasian style Pilsner? You know, is it really that different? (laughs) I get it for the for the for the BA guidelines. Um, first off, I should say it's not, I'm not the one who decides it. It's a committee. There's a committee of about 15 of us who, right. When I say you, I mean you, the, you, the team. As the, as the team. Yeah. Just, it is, it is a team decision based on a number of factors now. Um, but one category that comes to mind that I think is actually a really nice category is is what we call golden light or blonde ales. So that's going to include your American golden ales, American blonde ales, English summer ales, uh, Kolsch are all judged in that category. So we're talking about beers that are all very modest alcohol, very similar in body, very neutral in yeast profile, um, that aren't that hoppy, right? right? That can go into that category. And instead of having a separate English summer ale category from a Kolsch category from an American blonde ale category. Right. Um, so that's a good example of one. Or cream ales can go in there too. I mean, there's a few other things that get lumped in. Uh-huh. And I would make the case that there's no style of beer that can be entered at JBF that can't find a home in the OBAs. The categories are broad enough that we try and make them extensive enough that everywhere, every category, every kind of existent style has a home. Right. Yeah. There was a, I saw a Lichtenheiner was in. Uh, Historical beers. Right. So we <laughs> so have. You can throw so yeah, in a weird beer like we that. We have two catch-all categories, which, you know, I think is really good. One is kind of a, what we call rare, historical, or traditional other styles, which basically for beers that are brewed with Reinheitsgebot approved ingredients that don't fit into an existent style. So a German style porter, like a Kumbacher could go in there or a Lichtenheiner. So again, German historical styles as can, you know, we also then have on the flip side of that is an experimental beers category, which is the catch all, but has to have some sort of specialty ingredient. So even, you know, we try and split those two apart and it works pretty well. I mean, some of the categories are a little smaller than others, but for the most part, we have categories that are 
you know, on average above 40 entries per, mm-hmm. um, per categories, which is again, pretty, pretty steep. Are you trying to balance the categories so that they have like, you don't have one that's got half the beers in it and. Right. Of course. I mean, American IPA was the largest category this year with 90 entries. Uh, and you know, you can't really, sp- yeah, I suppose we could start splitting that down. I know a few brewers would love to see that split into two or three different versions of American IPA, but that hasn't happened yet. Well, you, you do actually split American hoppy ales up in, in an interesting way. You don't have it, uh, in the way that, uh, the JBF does talk about how you, how you divide. If you, if you've got a hoppy beer, it's uh, just divided by alcohol level. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, anything that's below 6% goes in one category, anything that's in the six to seven and a half percent goes into other and seven and a half and above or seven, six and above is, is separate. So yeah, we, that, that's just kind of, which isn't honestly, isn't that different between what you'd see from American pale ale, a strong pale American IPA, and then American double IPA. And we do the same for a hazy set of hazy categories as well. And, and so, uh, if you made a, a kind of a classical, uh, 6%, uh, English IPA, which category? Is there, is there, would there's actually that a classic UK style. Yeah. Style. So then, so there are, there's a, some catch all categories, classic UK styles for styles that don't have a, um, a speci- special call. So English bitters, old ales, milds, English IPA, English pale ale, uh, English brown ale would all fall into that category. And we try and in the guidelines for brewers as they're entering, call out, you know, these, the appropriately entered styles into this catch all category. These are things that you wouldn't enter in here. Right. Really try and make sure that people are not shooting themselves in the foot when they enter their beers by entering something in the wrong category. Yeah, you know? right. And then, uh, so how many, for each style, how many judges uh, are on that panel? Yes, yeah, so the way that works um, is that you would have a table of four or five judges. Right. And let's say, let's just take a category like Pilsner, for example, where there's 60, I think there were 65 entries this oh, year. that's so cool. 69 entries, go, so 70 entries. <laughs> Somewhere between 60 and 70 entries. That's that's a badass win. I bet brewers, Yeah, I mean, I no, bet they want to win that category. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a very hard fought category. I mean, they yeah. all are. Sure. But, you know, some are, some categories are, I think, sexier to brewers than others, right? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when, when we announced the awards, we said, and here's your award, here, here are your winners in Pilsner and IPA. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, with Pilsner, for example, let's just walk through that category. There are uh, 70 entries, say. Mm-hmm. We'll split that category into probably six or seven flights right. of 10 to 11 beers. Right. And depending, you know, in Pilsner, we'll have some German Pilsners, some Czech Pilsners, some American pre-pros, some Italian Pilsners, some ones that don't give any special call out. And in the first round, we'll group those together. So mm-hmm. let's say the three of us and one other person were sitting on a table. We're going to get a flight of just 11 beers. Right. We're all going to get the same set of beers. And we'll taste through the beers. Probably take 15 minutes to do that. Take some notes while we're doing it. And then the four of us or five of us would come back and start discussing the beers. Right. And there's no point system. You're not ranking the beers one through 11. You're not assigning a score like you would in a homebrew competition. We as a table have to agree upon, kind of come to consensus on what are the top three beers on the flight. Okay. And those top three beers advance to the next round. Uh, and then we're done. Those other 57 entries are judged by five or six different tables. Right. And they're each choosing their top three. So those advance on. Now, that second set of beers, so let's say there were seven tables initially. We're down to, we've gone from 65 entries or 70 entries down to 21 entries. That 21 is going to get split probably into two flights again and given to new judges, completely new judges with new numbers. So by the time those next beers advance onto a metal round, you get six beers in a metal round. It's already been vetted by two different sets of judges. And so then you get in that metal round and a table of five or six judges will again sit down with those beers having new numbers and award the bronze, silver, and golds. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, gold, bronze, and silver. <laughs> gold, silver, bronze. I don't know why it's so hard for me to say that for that category. Right. Um, so in any given moment, you're really only worried about your flight. As right. a judge, you know, you kind of are passing it on to the next round of judges. And sometimes you're receiving beers from other tables and sometimes you're sending it on. But it's not a marathon tasting of Pilsner, which I think would, of course, result in terrible palate fatigue and, and cancellation bias and all sorts of things that would be really just questionable as far as uh, the integrity of the judging. Right. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I think is cool about the festival is when you're doing the 
first round, I'm not really sure about the middle round. I can't remember how that goes. But the first round, you, you do this thing where um, you have a, a tape recorder. And so the deliberations are given to the the people who compete in it, the brewery, it's Correct, to the breweries. Yeah. And at the first round, you're really talking about the, the, the pluses and minuses of the beers, if there's flaws. You're really getting into an assessment of the beer. And then a metal round, you're no... The assumption is by the time you're in a metal round, you you don't have to assess the beer. It's already been assessed. Uh, and so you're not really talking about, am I getting off flavors? Is this an appropriate amount of uh, malt character? All that stuff. You're just you're trying to find out what the best beer is. So it kind of shifts as you get into the later rounds. Absolutely. And there's, you know, within that, there's a case we made for why the categories are should be, you know, robust in terms of their number of entries and not just down right. to a few because you want that metal round to be the best of the best in that category. You don't want to have half the beers sneak into a metal round and be kind of clunkers or be technically flawed. It really should at that point be about the kind of um, the spirit and the artistry and the essence of the style and the category as opposed to having to discuss the sulfur level in a Pilsner in the in the metal round, you know? This gets me to uh, the thing, the other piece of your uh, style guidelines that I really loved Um you kind of redefine what a good beer is from the GABF, certainly from the BJCP, away from adherence to style. The you know it, it, when you're when you have so many different styles, one of the main components of accomplishment, according to that kind of criteria, is how well you you nail the style according to the guidelines. For sure. And so you could have an, a spectacular beer, but if it's too hoppy, um, it's out. It doesn't, it doesn't meet the style guidelines, so it can be eliminated in, in other competitions. That's typical. Uh, that's not the approach you took. Yeah, we wanted to emphasize drinkability, approachability, enjoyment, uh, you know, moorishness, kind of these harmoniousness, balance, things like that that are these intangible qualities, particularly for, you know, kind of a metal round um, discussion. I think in preliminary rounds and semifinal rounds, oftentimes... The conversation still is very technical. You know, if you mm -hmm. listen to those recordings, if you're a brewer who's entering, you're getting technical feedback. You're hearing these beers are eliminated because they do have signs of oxidation or diacetyl or DMS. By the time it's a metal round, it is a little bit less like, okay, okay, which of these hits the style the most? And more it's like, which of these beers is the most just enjoyable, interesting, pleasant, balanced, and harmonious? So that's, it really is the, you winnow down to the top. I think that's where you see the difference in philosophy come out. Yeah. It's, um, a really interesting shift in in, in uh, approach, I think, because particularly a lot of the stuff comes out of the GABF. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, BJCP. You know, home brewers back in the 1970s were trying to figure out what beer is, and so they had these style guidelines, and they were trying to brew to make these beers that they didn't really understand very well. And so, actually, accomplishing that, you know, making a pilsner that that fell into these parameters and tasted like a pilsner should taste. That was kind of the goal, and it was really focused on improving the technique and improving, uh, you know, the the quality and and bringing everybody into an understanding of what the beer style was supposed to be like. Yeah. Now we're at a point where not only the brewers know that, but the con the, the consumers know that really well too. And the idea that uh, a beer that is dead smack in the middle of a style. Uh, is a better beer than a than a beer that's a little bit outside the style, but has these qualities that you're talking about: harmoniousness, uh, moorishness, just general that 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 thing that makes your eyes light up when you taste it. Um, that that the 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 style appropriate beer would surpass surpass that doesn't make sense to anyone now. Now that we know what beer is supposed to taste like, it's kind of weird that you would have this really uh, hidebound idea that that uh, meeting a style is better than making a good beer. Yeah, and for the, for what it's worth, I don't think that, I mean, as, as someone who judges GABF and World Beer Cup, I don't think that those guidelines and those judges are as um, hidebound, as you said, like in that yeah, sense. Yeah, it's, you know, it's more a homebrewer thing. I, I think, think it is. Yeah. It, it is a definitely, there's a, a BJCP mentality, but it, yeah. it, it's different because in part, and I'll tell a story here that I think illustrates this, it's it's about comparing beers that are in front of you to each other versus taking one beer and comparing it to some sort of platonic mm -hmm. vision of what that style is supposed to be. Right? I mean, the BJCP guidelines call out specific beers being like, this is a robust porter. This is a, right. you know, American brown ale. And so, you t you know, you're trained as a BJCP judge to evaluate a beer relative to a platonic version of the style. 
And so you can say, okay, well, this is too roasty for this style because I've had these classic examples and this roast is higher than those. And you know, it's kind of takes a little bit of an imaginative leap in, t in doing that, but that's kind of the approach. Whereas you have, you know, when let's take robust porter, for example, where the roast level should be relatively low as the guidelines are written. Well, what does that mean? I remember having a judge while we were waiting for beers to be brought to a table, this is a different competition years ago, uh, speak up and say, well, you know, we really need to be looking for a low roast. And another judge said, well, I think a little bit of roast is okay. I'm like, okay, here we go. And I'm the table captain. I'm like, <laughs> and I just said, and I don't know what made me th say this at the time, but in hindsight, I think it was uh, a decent thing to say. It's like, you know, guys, the beer is going to tell us what the level of roast is, right? Mm -hmm. In professional judging, it's like, you know, the roast is going to be, mm -hmm. these. Are, the median is going to be on this. And you don't want to be the most extreme or the least, the, the, the biggest gun or the smallest gun in that situation. Right, right. And I think that that is one lesson, too, for brewers, if there are any brewers who are listening and interested in competing. We, have, we do have them. You so, know, yeah. like, in, who are interested in succeeding in competition or wondering why, you know, certain things happen in competition who, and why judges say certain things. You know, it is always relative to the other beers in a flight. So when you're told right. this beer is too hoppy for American pale ale or it's too bitter for American pale ale, what I think you need to have in the back of your mind is that asterisk of like compared to the other beers that are being entered as American pale ales, you know, that your version, including sometimes versions that we make at Breakside, get knocked not because they're too hoppy compared to some platonic ideal or too much of one thing compared to some, you know, perfect beer in these judges' minds, but because that's where it falls just relative to the rest of the flight. And another interesting thing is that the platonic ideal, even the idea of a platonic ideal, kind of emerges from this sort of uh, antiquated idea that beer styles are fixed and, and you can sure. achieve it in one way. But even in the amount of time that you've been ho hosting this event, beer styles have changed enough that you've had to change your style categories to keep up with the changes that are Absolutely, happening. Absolutely, yeah. They're we that's what, We meet a committee every uh, June to look at where entries were the previous year, what's getting more popular, what's getting less popular, does anything deserve its own standalone category? Are there styles that are losing steam and that need to be condensed into other ones because mm -hmm. so that we don't have these tiny little categories sometimes? Are there new trends that are completely, you know, sui generis that need to be included in the guidelines somewhere as well? Yeah, and uh, I like that you tend to be a little bit more uh, reserved about that. Like there's no brute IPA category, for example. And that seems smart in 2020. And it may have seemed like a, in 2019, well, you got to have this category, but by 2020, there's not nearly as many people making brute IPAs. So. Sure. And those beers do have a home, right? right? I mean, right. they have some categories where they're specifically called out that they could be entered. Yeah. And that's, that's how you tuck them in there. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe we should pause, uh, because not only are you the competition director, of the OBA, but yes. you are the brewmaster of Breakside Brewing. Yes. And uh, <laughs> you brought us a beer. Yeah. And we have, we've gone a half an hour without drinking it. That's probably too long. So let's, let's crack this sucker open. Yeah, absolutely. So one, one thing you, you will guess don't realize is that we have a, a cool mic to do this. So I'm going to go to Edwina. Is Edwina the mic? Yeah. Is Ed, the mic. Edwina has an, her own name. <clears throat> Actually, can you reach that? Edwina is actually the the name that the microphone manufacturer gives this particular style. So, but I somehow feminize Edwina and think of her as a wonderful little mic. So, tell us what you brought as Patrick pours this out. This beer is called uh, "I Can Show You the World." It is a pilsner with jasmine flowers. And it's a part of a series of collaboration beers that we are doing for our 10th anniversary, which is this year, 2020. Right. And you did this with? This is with the Rare Barrel out of Berkeley, California. So this is a brewery that has gotten a huge amount of attention, but I don't know too well. So yeah. tell us a little bit about them. Well, uh, my friends Jay and Alex started the Rare Barrel in 2014. Before that, Jay had worked at the brewery, uh, the okay. mm -hmm. B-R-U-E. Right. R-Y-E-R-Y Brewery, uh, and was a real advocate and um, enthusiast for sour beers. And so he and his friend Alex decided to um, open this brewery that was dedicated entirely to the production of wood-age sour beers. And they have more or less maintained that to this day. Uh, they are starting to do some clean beers as well now, but they were real kind of 
um, leaders and thought leaders and just excellent producers of American sour beers, mixed culture sour beers. Uh, the beers back in 2014, 2015, when they first came on the market, were very, very acidic, and they've tamed them quite a bit over time. Yeah, uh, come into balance, I think, as much of the American sour beers movement did. Right. Uh, you may know Jay too. He hosts a podcast called The Sour Hour um, on the Brewing Network. I don't know, that, and but it's a I'll check it out for a lot of brewers. In that, you know, by virtue of hosting that and bringing other brewers on, uh, talking about process, mm-hmm. uh, talking about technique, I think that he was a real. Uh, leader and kind of inspiration to a lot of other brewers about, you know, kind of opening uh, people's eyes to how to make better mixed culture and mixed firm and spontaneous and uh, acidic beers. Mm -hmm. And so we've been huge uh, fans of them. I've known those guys for a number of years now, uh, worked on a couple of different projects with Jay in particular. And uh, the thing is that I think when we talk about all the sour stuff with them is that what people lose sight of is that they are also just really good brewers with a number of other ingredients because there's yeah, so, so many, I was going to say, so of course you brewed a Pilsner right. with these guys, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the, the reason is that, uh, is Jasmine actually uh-huh. was the real key thing. So one of, they made this beer, oh gosh, four years ago, five years ago called, called On the Shoulders of Giants. I think it was a collaboration with. Uh, Lauren Limbach, uh, Lauren Salazar, formerly, and um, right. it was a uh, mixed culture sour beer aged on peaches with jasmine, and it was just one of those beers that I tasted and said, you know, kind of an eye-opening moment, inspirational, and it's like, you know, this is the kind of sour beer I want us to make, and we actually made a beer called In the City of Flowers that was a peach and jasmine beer, uh, mm-hmm. kind of as a tribute to that, and so jasmine was the thread that we wanted to continue with here and it is a it is a disney reference uh you know we're not uh <laughs> too far i'm i'm all, i'm good with the pop culture references okay. even if they come from the early 90s I, I, um, I did not catch that uh i apparently i'm too old or something i don't know or, you, you've never 90s. seen aladdin I don't have kids yeah, I've never I, seen Aladdin. I don't Sorry. have kids. I have not seen Aladdin. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, we got to end the show and we're going to go to the video store here. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, well, I know. Any, anyhow, uh, so you're probably wondering why did you use a Scorsese a reference? Name? I would have known that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's it's a pretty, uh, it's a really nice uh, malt bill of some Canadian Pilsner and some Bohemian Pilsner, about 11 uh, and a half Play-Doh. Is that Gambrinus? Uh, it's actually Superior Malting Canada. Okay. Canada Malting Superior Pils. Uh, and I, I, I like the Gambrinus Pale Malt pretty well. Their Pilsner to me is pretty uh, husky. Mm-hmm. Um, so not, not a malt that we use at Breakside. We do really like the Canada Malting uh, Pils. And yeah, so we did that, and it's got a little bit of a hop called Hallertau Relax, which is a very, very low alpha hop out of the Hallertau. Uh-huh. That was really meant more for like tea infusions, I think, than it is for brewing, but uh-huh. we found it to be a pretty cool and potent aroma hop. And then we condition it on two types of jasmine. So one is some like actual just true jasmine flowers that have been dried. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then on some green tea that is conditioned on fresh, undried jasmine flowers. Um, and so that's what the beer is then. I, uh, conditioned on. I have to say, uh, I I was a little anxious when you brought this beer because I thought it was going to not be pilsnery enough for me. But it's it's very crisp, very classic. The the classic mm-hmm. pilsner profile that you want. Uh, a nice balance of malt and hop, and then the jasmine comes right at the end. It's a very subtle floral note that is uh, not overwhelming and doesn't seem to interfere with the the pleasure of the pilsner. Thanks. Yeah, I think that the jasmine your, your is is a uh, meant to be an integrated component, not mm-hmm. the dominant character. Yeah. No, I think it's really nice on the nose. And then it kind of, as you as you say, it sort of appears at the end, but then it kind of sits with you. It's really nice. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, mm. Yeah, it almost, it almost seems kind of like an ester uh, as it, in the aftertaste. It yeah. has a, more than a, uh, an aromatic quality. It almost seems like there's a chemical compound happening there. So it's interesting, which, probably is similar i bet they're you know there are esters that are very very floral so that kind of makes sense sure or yeah fusel alcohols possibly i mean there's lots of compounds that can play off that floral note i mean to me in some ways it actually just reminds me of um really pleasant harrisbrooker or other haller tower hops as mm-hmm. well you mm-hmm. know yeah totally so you're doing this is your 10th anniversary congratulations Thank you, you were the original founding brewer uh when it was just a little three barrel brewery well, that's out right in um so you've been there through uh, massive uh, 
uh, change and growth. Yeah. Uh, both in the lineup and the, you now have three breweries and how many employees do you have? Across the whole company, we're about 150 folks. So you, you got a big company now. How many how many beer uh, barrels you make a year? Oh, about thirty thousand. So pretty darn big brewery at this point. You're not uh, you know not Deschutes big, but um, you're in the top uh, 200 breweries in America or something like that. Yeah, it is. somewhere in somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. So um, quite a bit of change. And so to celebrate this, instead of sitting back and relaxing, you decided <laughs> to, to do this crazy project where you're doing two collaborations every month for the entire year of 2020. It started as a much <laughs> more modest kind of project. We were like, oh, it's, you know, John over at Ecliptic did five beers for five years, and I thought that was a cool project. And I was like, oh, let's do this, something similar for our 10th anniversary. And, you know, we've been really lucky. We, we've been, I think one of the things that I've been really fortunate about with Breakside is that... Um, Scott, you know, who's the founder, my business partner, uh, is has always kind of wanted to be a kind of part of the larger beer community, not just in Oregon, but uh, outside of the state, you know, whether it be at GABF or World mm-hmm. Beer Cup, mm-hmm. CBC, but also doing festivals. And, you know, we, and we sell beer outside of state. So we sell beer in California, North Carolina and South Carolina and Massachusetts. Not a lot, but we sell beer there and we go to events there. And I think some of our... Hopefully, some of our success over the years has been uh, in part by being able to get out of our little bubble here in the Northwest, which right. is a great bubble, the best bubble. I'd choose no other one. <laughs> but it's good to go and see what's going on flavor-wise elsewhere in the country. And along the way, we've been really lucky to just make some great friends. And when we started to narrow down the list, it just – we got down to like 50, and I was like, ah, I don't really want to cut another <laughs> 40 people off this. So, you know, then we got down to 40 and it really got tough. And then I we implemented a few criteria, and I got down to 25, and I said, I'm done. Like, we're going to do 25 <laughs> collaborations. We can make it work. Oh, so you've snuck in. Actually, it's it's not just two a month. There's a two a month plus a bonus. It's month. really 26. Yes, a baker's dozen on each. So, yeah, yeah, I think we'll be at 20. And that's not to even mention just other collaborations that we're doing that are kind of, you know, just regular. side project, like right. collaborations. Yeah. So uh, when you do a collaboration, you have to coordinate with the other brewery. Yes. You have to decide what you're going to do. Uh, then you have to come up with a recipe, uh, and then you have to begin to brew it. And while you're doing this, you're doing it with other breweries. So you've got the program that goes into the bottle, which is from the uh, out-of-state breweries the out-of-state going breweries. into package, yeah. And then uh, local breweries is on draft, correct? So uh, you're. I just assume that this is a, a complex uh, logistic challenge. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of project <laughs> management being dedicated to this. But you know, we, we roll it out. It's about a hundred and. 20 day process, right? From the time we've obviously gotten all the brewery partners in, in, uh, lined up, right. talk to people about, you know, Hey, can you come out in August and brew this beer for, at this pub? And then mm-hmm. we'll release it in November, that kind of thing. But, you know, t- tomorrow, for example, I need to reach out to two of our collaboration partners to brew beers in late April for release in mid June, uh, production release in mid June. So, you know, I think as with many large projects, if you, take it in small enough bites, you can can do it. But it is a lot of, of balls in the air at once. And uh, I forget sometimes, you know, my mind is on the beer that we're designing and working on. Once it's been brewed and we've kind of tweaked it and it passed it on to the production team, Jacob Leonard and the whole production team kind of shepherd it through there. And by that time, I'm three beers ahead <laughs> on the right. uh, redevelopment side. So totally. I forget what's in the market and what's at the pub and what hasn't even been brewed yet. You yeah, know? I'm that way with books. Like right now I'm working on a book that won't be released for a year. By the time that book comes out, I'm on to my next project. Right. And it comes out and I think, oh, uh, what I this book happened. Sometimes it's much longer than a year or two. Sometimes it can be a couple of years. So uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Your your mind space, you live in this space that is out of time with other people. Yeah. And I would say that's not something that's new. I mean, we've, we've always made a lot of beers, as, as you know. Right. And mm-hmm. You're uh, the first brewery that I knew that went over 100 beers in a year. Yeah, you know, I think Block 15 probably was not that far off from us early on. They they made a lot of beers. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think we created— I'm sure you weren't the I, first, but I, it was you were the first one I knew about. Yeah. So you were in that range. And we we were intentional about it. We were vocal about about setting that as a goal. Right. I think that there was some fear at the time, back in 2013, that, oh, you know, this brewery who's known for their creative experimental beers is going to lose their mojo because they're going to become a production brewery. And we wanted to make it very clear that just because we were growing— that wasn't going to hinder us from being uh, experimental and innovative. And, you know, this is also a time almost eight, nine years ago now where production breweries made maybe 12 beers a year. Right. Yeah. Totally. So 
I, I certainly don't think that we uh, led the charge on it, or I think we were probably more a symptom of something that was we saw consumers starting to ask for. Yeah, right. Yeah. Rather, but you know, yes, we were on the front end of that curve of rotation nation, and now you know, I'm not sure <laughs> we may have let you know been part of opening that Pandora's box. I'm not sure. <laughs> now you're slaves to it. Yeah, yeah now exactly. we're slaves to it. But hey, if you have 25 friends around the country you can bring in convinced to be part of it, then it's worth right. it, right? Yeah. But do you think that's really important now for, for craft brewers to to maintain that level of innovation and creativity? I think it has a lot to do with perception. I mean, to this day, right, you know, two brands of ours make up over 60% of our beer, okay. right, the, uh, by volume. And, and, w- and which are they? Breaks at IPA and Wanderlust. Yeah, okay. The two beers. Uh, Still the two IPAs. Yeah. Because yeah. Pilsner used to yeah, be a big say. part of your production. Pilsner was, was our number one beer until about... Uh, Middle of 2014, yeah. And okay. Pils- huh. if you add Pilsner in there, then you're up to close to, you know, right around 75%. Okay. Um, so those three beers really make up three quarters of the production. So it's a long, long tail of the other, right. you know, 140 beers we make in a year. But it's really important to pay attention to that short tail, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's a balance, right? You have yeah. to be making, you know, you it's, it's almost, I kind of think it's like we almost have two consumer markets here. Right. We still have the market who wants... Uh, flagship beers mm-hmm. who buys flagship beers and that's our wholesalers that's our core customers it's the people who come into our tap room as regulars day in day out who love those core brands right and will occasionally try something new and then we have a number of consumers who want the new thing every single time right. i mean you walk into any bar around town and you can see that same dichotomy you can go into a beer bar that is you know or a bar in portland i should say because all Bars in Portland are beer bars. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you can go into a bar in Portland that has 20 taps, and those can be rotating 20 taps. Right. Or you can go to a bar that has 20 taps, and it is 20 flagships. Right. And both those bars in this town, at least you know, as of March 2020, are still doing great. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, an interesting thing uh, to me is breweries trying to figure out this, this balance, and it seems like what you've done is exactly where you want to be, right? You want to have a lot of products out there uh, to be a relevant uh, player in this this space so that when people there's there's some breweries that release a lot of beers but when consumers see the name of the the new beer they're not that interested in it sure so you want to you want to have relevancy to the market where you're going through the churn but as a brewery to depend on that market to have to come up with 100 beers to make up your profile every year seems really dangerous well it's to nice. your point though there's 170 <laughs> styles in the brewery you know the the bjcp guidelines you can just make one of those each you know two a week and you're fine for the year right I mean, <laughs> so it's not that hard I it's mean, not that hard but it seems like as a business it would be hard to survive on uh always never knowing what your next beer was going to be and you know yeah being absolutely. able to just have IPA and Wanderlust uh, and have a nice production schedule and have a nice, you know, you know which malts you're buying, you know which hops you're buying for 60% of your production. That seems like a handy place to be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, we're very, very fortunate those two beers continue to do as well as they do. I mean, and I, I think it would be very difficult to be a brewery of our size without some sort of flagship momentum. You right. know, I think yeah, that maybe yeah. I, I don't know where that tipping point is um, just because we haven't gone through yeah. that and I've never really spent too much time trying to figure that out but i'm sure there is some point where you can be a smaller you know quote-unquote production brewery um you know distributing the market packaging a small amount of beer and can really just rotate 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 you don't need any beer to be your kind of major volume uh producer but at some point i think yeah you can't i don't know if you can be a twenty thousand or fifteen thousand barrel your brewery without at least one beer that's carrying a good bit of your volume yeah do you, is that, are those beers static or do you tweak those recipes through time? Oh, everything gets tweaked through time. Yeah. 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 Patrick and I were really surprised to see that uh, IPA won silver at the OBA. Yeah. Your IPA won silver at the OBA because that's a beer that dates back to like 2011 or something, right? It's a, that, that, that brand. The name. Yeah. What's the, <laughs> what, I mean, what's it, is it Theseus ship? Is that the, the. Uh, thought problem and philosophy. <laughs> okay, right. Where so, another thing you may right. not know about Ben is he went to Yale. So uh, <laughs> I, he, he I got a like good, he got a good I, education. I, Those I, are big words, I think Ben. I learned <laughs> this beer from. Uh, yeah, we, we talk about beer, man. <laughs> I think I learned this from a high school math teacher who didn't oh. want to talk about the you know fundamental theorem of calculus or something at, at the time and uh-huh. started delving into philosophy. <laughs> but the idea, you know, if you have a ship that comes into harbor and you replace, imagine a ship that comes into harbor and you take two pieces of wood off the hull of the ship and replace it with new wood. And, you know, over the course of a year, it travels around the world. And every time it comes into port, you have, you replace some of the wood on that ship such that by the time it makes it back to its home port a year later, not a single piece of the original 
uh, wood is there. Is it the same it's ship? The same ship. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that that is sure the brand is the sh- it, the the, sh- the brand was there 11 years ago. It's a, not the same beer. It's a better beer. It's more contemporary beer. Yeah. Right. But I think the goal has always been for it to be a contemporary beer. Yeah. Right. You know, it's it's trying to align, um, not just like the like another consumer's palate. We want to keep it relevant to our consumers. Right. 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 You know, so that's the trickiest part. You know, you, you're trying to keep something at the cutting edge of flavor and a style, but it has to resonate with the people who are already buying it. You can't you right. know, yeah. forsake them. Right. I think when p- people talk about tweaking recipes in ways that, you know, they have nightmares as a company, as a brewery, <laughs> it's more because they forget that what they, they're suddenly trying to seek a customer who's not already there. What we're trying to do is keep that customer, keep them excited, and hopefully bring more people into the fold at the same right. time. My I, guess is people... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, is that like an annual process? It's ongoing. I mean, we talk literally make tweaks weekly. Oh, okay. Uh, though, I mean, fundamentally, I should also say those beers are not that different. Right. Wanderlust and Breaks IPA. Oh, yeah. Breaks IPA in 2011 was... It's still a West Coast IPA. It was Citra Mosaic Chinook. Maybe not Mosaic at the time. Probably Mosaic a year later. Right. Right, because Mosaic wasn't even out. But it was Citra yeah. Chinook. That beer remains Citra Chinook Mosaic. And that's the fun... And it's the base malts are the same. They're in a little bit of different proportion. Right. The gravity's a little bit different. The views are a little bit different. But, you know the flavor profile that we're targeting is pretty close. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, I bet, so a lot of times, uh, I, I going way back, I remember uh, Jamie Emerson at Full Sail saying, people always would come to him and say, why did you change the recipe for your amber ale? Which they never did. But people's palates shifted. Yeah. And so the perception was that they had changed the recipe. You're doing the opposite, where you're changing with people's palates as they evolve to make it seem the same. And I bet, have you heard from people that that they're surprised that you've changed the recipe because it always seems the same to them? Well, you know, I'll talk about it frankly with you guys, but it's not something we advertise. We don't put it on the side of the bottle precisely for that reason that, we, right. you know, we changed the label on Wanderlust and everyone thought we had changed the recipe. <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> at the time we hadn't, you know, that was one time where it was yeah. kind of static. And um, yeah, so, you know, I'm not trying to raise alarm by any means, but, you know, for yeah. the people who are kind of the advanced consumers and connoisseurs, I think that the intellectual honesty can yeah. make people maybe revisit one of those beers. And, you know, frankly, like of all the medals that we won at this year's OBA, there's none that I'm more proud of than that because that's our flagship beer. And it's been around 11 years and still is, you know, a relevant American IPA. Yeah. yeah. When we, when we read out the awards, we, we commented that it was, it was impressive that you had won for IPA and that uh, Freem had won for Pilsner because I know that that's another beer that they invest a huge amount of their effort and energy into. It's one it's their, one of their two flagships and they really care deeply about that beer. And so it matters and, to I mean, you know. And if you haven't had Freem Pils in the last few months, I, I would say this to anyone. Um, first of all, drink Breakside beer. But <laughs> if you haven't had any Freem Pils, <laughs> if you haven't had some Freem Pils lately, I mean, it, that beer's lights out good right now. Yeah. yeah. It's been, I, I feel like they've upped it. I mean, and, you know, it's interesting too, uh, not to take it away you know, to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I'll pat Freeman on the back too. You know, the best of craft beer awards was a week earlier. Yeah. It's weird so that those happened. Those happened at the same time. That's this, a, a very large national competition. By mm-hmm. very large, it's 3,000 entries. So it's uh-huh. double or 2,500 entries. So it's double the size of the OBA, but goes with a lot more categories. So right. some of those categories are less competitive, but the competitive categories, the bigger categories are still very competitive, you know, 50, 60 entries. Yeah. At least. And who won gold in uh, Pilsner there in German style Pilsner? Freem, who won gold in uh, we in American Strong Pale Ale, breaks that IPA. You know, so it's like <laughs> yeah. there's some assonance there. It's you know, it's not just a, some homers at the OBA saying it. Right. It's it's there's some consistency there. Well, to get back to the OBA, I think that's one of the cool things about having a competition in a region because you're having all these judges who are brewing for a marketplace. They talk to each other. They know each other. They taste each other's beers. Um, there is, you know, beer is local, right? Like we drink beer in a context and the, we drink it together. And so when you have this, it's a kind of a, uh, uh, you don't have the same thing that you have in much larger competitions where, uh, you know, people have different palates, different approaches in New England and Texas and Florida than they do here. So everybody's kind of on the same page. And it's, I, I really, I really like that about this festival. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a advantage and it's a hindrance too, you know, and I'll, if I really want to navel gaze about the nature of that <laughs> kind of why, bias. That's right? why I invited you yeah, here to do this. Here. <laughs> it is great. I mean, it, it is because it's local, it's reflective of the average local consumer, the average local palate, let's say, maybe not the, right. the you know, 
some of those beers that win that might not do well in the national competition do well because they kind of capture the zeitgeist of the right. Oregon palate at that moment in time. Right. That said, we have a few breweries. Uh, you know, if you look over the data over the years who have done very well at the OBAs, but for whatever reason, that doesn't necessarily translate to the national competitions. In general, it does translate, but sometimes it doesn't. I think some of that is probably some kind of regional uh, difference, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of that for whatever reason, some of those beers appeal very well to a regional palate versus a national or multi-regional palate. And that's why we, one of the reasons, like I mentioned earlier, that we like to travel mm-hmm. um, outside the region and try and taste, see what's going on elsewhere, but also why we send beers to competitions outside the region too. Right. Yeah, right. You know, like I love going to the North American Beer Awards in Idaho Falls because it draws a lot of judges from Idaho, Utah, Colorado, Montana, um, a very different draw than the OBAs. And so you really set these tables with people who are, have completely different palates. Right. You know, and I remember I was judging, um, and I should say completely different palates, but their priorities are slightly different. I don't yeah. remember I was judging a category. The Mountain West is very different than the the Northwest, the West Coast. Yeah. I was judging, it was Golden Ales or maybe English Summer Ale a couple of years ago. And I was kind of advocating for this one beer. But <laughs> one of the judges who was from Wyoming uh, just said, he's like, he's like, you're just advocating for the hoppiest beers on the, on the table. <laughs> <laughs> and I took a second and I was like, I was like, oh, he's right. <laughs> and that's, you know, my take on the style is that it, that, that was appropriate. And his right. take on the style was that that was too much. Right. Yeah. Uh, I judged a round of German Pilsner at GABF this year. And the three judges, myself from the Northwest, one uh, judge from Indiana and one from the East Coast, couldn't have had more different opinions on it. That was a real uh, slugfest table for a first <laughs> round. We were like, gosh, what are we going to do here? And... I think a lot of it is regional bias. I think that yeah. sometimes brewers, myself included, forget, you know, and obviously in the Northwest, a lot of it's hop. It's just hop bitterness. It's hop aroma. Mm-hmm. You know, we as a re- reflex probably just add a little too much. Uh, and it's, it's not it's, too it's, much. It's all regional. It is. It is what it is. You know, I mean, I, I travel around the world and, you know, people make beer in Germany. People make pilsners differently in Bavaria sure. than they do in northern Germany. Sure. So, you know, these things are regional. And to think that there's an empirical right or wrong is, I think— It goes back to the platonic ideal exactly. thing. It doesn't really— yeah, That's yeah. right. Yeah, absolutely. And when you bring judges together who have different priorities on their palates and you ask them to determine what is, within the guidelines, the most pleasant beers to the most people, the beers that stand out as the most kind of regional— in their flavor profile are going to do less well than ones that kind of shift toward the center. Right. 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 I mean, appropriate conversation uh, in primary season, right? You know, it's like, do you go with the extreme or do you go to the center? (laughs) And uh, I think that's one lesson we've learned. It doesn't necessarily change the beers that we make, but it changes how we think about entering beers. Right. Right. So uh, I think we're getting a little bit long on time. So I have two questions for you before we, before we head out. All right. Uh, One is, uh, so I know you're the director and I should probably ask other brewers this, but what's your sense of what this means to the brewers who compete? Is this a, you know, breweries enter a lot of competitions and I think they have a lot of different reasons. Are there, it seems to me like there's bragging rights here. Is that, is that right? Is this a meaningful competition? I think it's, uh, I would like to think it's very meaningful to a lot of Oregon brewers. I mean, it's hard fought as I've pointed out a couple of times and it's your home ter- turf mm-hmm. and it's your, you're competing against your friends and peers being judged by people who's you know in this industry. Um, and again, it's all double blind. So the feedback you're getting is uh, the judges don't know the beers. The people who are serving the beer don't know the beers. The people who are pouring the beers are the actually the only people who know which beer is in which cup. And those people don't ever see the judges. So it's, you know, you have right. all these sets of removal. So mm-hmm. the feedback that you're getting is authentic and unedited. And that's, you know, we talk about the... Um, the recordings is part of that too. So I think there's a real legitimacy to all of those pieces of it and that you, I hope it's also a good educational tool. So this brings me to my last question, yeah. which uh, many people will, I want someone to ask Ben Edmonds. So I'm yeah. going to ask it on there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little chin music. So are you ready? Sure. ready for the high, the high fast ball? Yeah. Uh, Breakside always kills at this competition. <laughs> you guys always going the most left medals and you're the competition chair. Yeah. What say you, Ben Edmonds? Are you rigging the competition? <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> it, I suppose that if uh, 
if I were rigging the competition, if I were putting this whole competition on to win for Breakside, I would hope that you would think that I would better things to do with my time. <laughs> yeah, let's start with that. Uh, no, I'm certainly aware of what people perceive as a weird optics thing. Um, you know, fortunately, we do well in other competitions. We'll start with that. Right. You know, like, and, you know, I'm the pass through for information on it. I don't judge. I don't. Uh, see the beers getting poured. I don't touch the beers as they're going through the whole process. It's paper pushing and that's about it. So anyone, I mean, the other thing is the entire competition because it's recorded is available, right? You know, like there's a, there's, there's a full audio record of everything that happens every single year. Um, the decisions are made by committee, you know, whether that be the styles and judging committee or the ceremony and uh, Academy committee. So, I think that, uh, you know, I I am invested in the competition in the sense that I want it to be excellent for Oregon and Oregon brewers. And, you know, if there were a groundswell of, uh, you know, concern, I would address that, I suppose. But I right. think that right now we saw a 17 percent increase in entries this year. We saw more breweries participate than ever. So to that end, the people who are paying money to enter the competition believe that it's legitimate and very important. Yeah, I, I wanted you to say that for yourself uh because having been a judge uh it it would be it would be pretty challenging to rig the competition you'd you'd have to do it at the back end uh because clearly the judging is on the up and up and um everybody i think all the all the people who participate in it um know that it's a a really well-run competition but um the optics question uh comes up so i sure i thought i'd throw you that the i mean the other side is you're willing to do the hard work, and I assume this takes a fair amount of your your time every year. It's not a it's not a small project, yeah. But I, and I love it, you know. And I, it really is out of um, desire to provide Oregon brewers, ourselves included, with this platform to get really great feedback from our peers, mm-hmm. because it does, I think, translate to better beers and competitions and better beer in the marketplace for Oregon beer, and it means that we can do hopefully do better at you know. Uh, in national competitions and bring attention to the quality of Oregon beer that that quality gets delivered to the consumer and you hear it from brewers too you hear Alan Taylor on stage saying I listen to the feedback people tell me I don't listen very often but I listen to the feedback and look here I am now with a gold medal like you know and you can't you know can't pay for those sorts of moments right right yeah uh and i think it also gives everybody a common vocabulary which is also really valuable um when you're just your own business and you're making your beer and you you're not you're not bouncing it off other people and participating in this community then uh it's easy to kind of drift away and 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 then that the whole quality thing can 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 be an issue and i i just the reason one reason why i think it it is valuable to brewers is because when i go into pubs uh, and breweries i often see uh, the OBA, uh, you, you, you give out, uh, tap handles and I often see those tap handles around, uh, displayed prominently among like GABF medals and, and then the OBA, it seems like those are the two that they're most proud of. So <laughs> I think you've done good work. Thank you. Uh, well, thank I, you. And thank you for judging. I mean, I, it really is like, again, I'm, but the kind of conduit of putting it all together, <laughs> but it's, it's, we have an amazing team of judges and stewards, you know, and I think that the legitimacy, the competition rests on the quality of the judges. And then, of course, the quality of the execution from the steward team is really tremendous. So, you know, we take every mistake that we make on the chin and really try and learn from it and try and keep judges in the room who are great. You know, as you know, we solicit feedback about individuals. We try and diversify the judge pool, try and keep it fresh. More more and more women showing up. Very good. And also try and, you know, for frankly, for folks who aren't doing things to improve their beer quality or improve their sensory knowledge, Mm -hmm. they get rotate it out yeah yeah i i i I come in there and i try to have my 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 a game on really (laughs) uh, i'm always the i'm always feeling like i'm a little bit of the dead weight so yeah you gotta you gotta have your a game yeah (laughs) all right well i think we're running all of a sudden i have one final question because it's always been bugging me uh where does the name breakside come from Oh gosh, this is like a this is an old one. Yeah, exactly. This is good. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, that's a slam lyrics. dunk question to finish. <laughs> <laughs> so the the it's a it's an ultimate frisbee term originally. Okay. It's, we do good cop bad cop here, so that's yeah, what, you know. that's fine. <laughs> uh, it's an ultimate frisbee term, uh-huh. and it is uh, the two founders, Scott and um, his original partner in the business, this guy named Tony, uh-huh. were introduced through the ultimate frisbee community. Okay, um, and uh, when they decided to open this brewery together, they Figured they, they would use a Frisbee term, mm-hmm. but very quickly, Scott has 
very good business acumen realized that marketing as an ultimate Frisbee brewery would have a fairly <laughs> limited appeal. Right. So Breakside became a kind of lifestyle term, yes. you know, relax, enjoy life, kick back, the, yeah. you know. Well, and if it's I'm, a great. I, I, th- I believe it refers to on the ultimate field, it's the weak side, right? So if most of the people are on one side, you go to the other side. Isn't that what it means? Yeah, if we want to go to the, the Frisbee piece of it, I think it's actually a very telling. Exactly. It's a really good name. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it yeah, has you have a, your a four, deeper You have meaning. your fourth side and your break side if yeah. you're on the offense, right? So I guess, well, I guess offense or defense. If you're on the defense on ultimate Frisbee, you, you as a team elect what you call the fourth side. Mm-hmm. And so you are... Forcing that's the t- because the w- who you position yourself right. when you're playing man to man coverage, you force their throws one direction, right? So the opposite side is called the break side, right? Well, so there's the force side, which is where you're trying to get them to throw, the other side is the break side. If they're able to get around your defense and make a pass that connects on the break side, it changes the flow of the game because the whole defense has been oriented about this direction, this direction, and suddenly the play is now going that direction. Right. Cutting the grain against the grain. Yeah, yeah, so very clever. It does. It does have oh, thank you so much. No, I don't I've think been... that was originally the intent. We can pretend it was. It, now, it, you know? it really requires you have, have kind of a deep sense of uh, ultimate frisbee, of frisbee strategy. Strategy. Yeah. yeah but, well, and it was interesting. Now you know, so, ten years ago we didn't have a frisbee theme brewery in Oregon, uh, and now we uh, do have one. Actually, if you've <laughs> been right? out to Bend, right? Bevel Craft Beer is uh, very much. You know, they they are the frisbee golf folks uh, <laughs> players, uh-huh. and if you, it's a great little brewery. If you haven't been out there, I uh, enjoyed myself much when I was in Bend, and they really went for that theme. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. It's been ten years. I finally know. <laughs> but it is just a great name. It's just evocative of just. Yeah. Yeah. And now it, it's a nice thing to have that it, no one knows what it means, so now it means you. So that's yeah. good. It's always good. It's yeah, not generic. It's, uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. It evokes this yeah idea that you you know grab a beer, have a break, you know, relax. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so are we done? I think we should wrap it up. Uh, okay. We could talk another hour, but we should yeah. probably. Move <laughs> we along. better get going. We probably will once the mics are off. Too, yeah, right? that could That's happen. Right. All right, a few words going out. Once again, we want to extend a hearty thank you to Breakside Brewery. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, uh, guys. For sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana Show. You can find them in Portland and Milwaukee, Oregon at breakside or at breakside.com. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other <laughs> listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. And you can, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I, I wow. jumped the gun. Wow, that's so new. Usually I just have dead air because I'm waiting for you. Jeff blogs at Blog, and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. All right. So we have lots of beer in front of us. Let's grab some and cheers. All right. I'm going to take my rainbows and unicorns. I'm going to take this nice lager, which, by the way, has a wonderful lager character. People always talk about how yeast does not have character, but this is so clearly lager yeast. Yeah. And uh, it's wonderful. So I'm going to do that. So cheers, guys. All right. Cheers, cheers folks. Cheers.